Welcome to the Consortium Podcast, an academic audio blog sponsored by Kepler Education. Kepler is a consortium of independent, classical Christian teachers unified by a shared vision for student flourishing. Welcome, folks. I'm Scott Postma, your host. I'm glad to have you on the consortium today. And we have a very special guest, Dr. Junius Johnson. Dr. Johnson, thanks so much for being with us on the Consortium Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, as we have uh, had the privilege of getting to meet in person and getting to know each other a little bit through uh, you know, further correspondence, uh, one of the things that I'm most intrigued about all of our guests, in particular, uh, in particular, intrigued about uh, learning from you, is your own journey toward education. And maybe you could just start by introducing yourself in a, a brief way, and then share with our listeners, you know, what led you into academia? How did you get your own education? You know, tell us about that journey. Yeah, so I'm a uh, I'm a scholar of theology, um, philosophy, and literature. Um, I do a lot of work in medieval theologians. I'm especially interested in what I call philosophical theology, which uh, by which I mean the philosophical explication of Christian doctrines. Um, I have this uh, belief that you know you always say if you think about something really difficult, people say, well, you know, it's not rocket science. Um, so rocket science is like our uh, touchstone for something that's incredibly difficult that the average person wouldn't wouldn't be able to understand. Um, by contrast, a lot of times theology gets a, a bad rap as being anti-intellectual, as requiring you to simply believe and not use your mind at all. Um, but that doesn't really follow from the claims of Christianity because if our claims are true. If if God is the creator of all things and is infinitely greater than all things, then the hardest subject uh, is theology because God is the hardest thing. Even though all the objects of rocket science are still creatures like us that are on a sort of, they're adequated to us in some way, whereas God is not. We couldn't know nothing about God if God were not the type of God who chose to reveal himself and who created a world for the purpose of revealing himself. So, so part of my work is to show that while it's not necessary to be um, to have a, a rigorous uh, education in order to approach God in faith, that um, God is the type of in thing, the type of object of knowledge who rewards our most rigorous thinking um, and our most rigorous approaches. So that's kind of who I, I am. I, I hate to interrupt you. This is this is fantastic so far, but you already said something that really is compelling to me. That um, I would love for you maybe just to touch on real quick before you get into your journey. Uh, the way you just framed that was really interesting because in in the you know back in the day uh, mm -hmm. prior before the modern uh, thinking came into being, uh, theology was the queen of sciences, right? And so right. we we would actually think of something like rocket science as a subsidiary or or even a peripheral kind of science that that would come secondary to knowing theology. But we've, yeah. we've switched that in the modern world and you That's seem right. to be approaching it differently. That's right. Um, you know, rocket science, which back in the day would have been astronomy, which was part of one of the quadrivial arts, was explicitly a preparation for theology. I think a lot of times when folks hear that phrase, theology is the queen of the sciences, their response is, oh, see, there you go again, saying theology gets to dictate to everyone else how this is how you do biology and this is how you do chemistry. That's not really what it meant originally. What it really meant was theology was the goal of the sciences. And so you studied the trivium and the quadrivial those seven liberal arts to prepare yourself for the advanced study of theology. Um, and that's that's that is the way I approach it because I think that is the that is authentic to 
the claims that we as Christians make about the universe. You got God is at the top and everything else descends from, is derived from God according to his willing and pleasure. And so we should expect to see connections between those things, but at the top of the pyramid is not um, quantum mechanics or their relativity, but rather God. That's awesome. I, I apologize for interrupting you, but I really appreciate you expanding on it. That's, that's fabulous. So you were telling us about your journey in, in your own education. Yeah. So I mean, my journey can best be described as rocky. Um, I definitely had a rocky start. I was, um, I was always good at it. Um, and so when I was very young, I got good grades and, and this sort of a thing. Um, and actually the primary uh, reason why I worked for good grades was because uh, my father would pay me for my grades. And so it was a purely uh, financial transaction on my part. Um, at a certain point, uh, our family's fortunes reached a point where it was no longer possible for him to pay me for my grades. And when I realized that, I discovered that I didn't really have another reason to try. And so um, I wandered on different paths. But here's what's interesting. So as I stopped doing my schoolwork and stopped getting good grades in school, originally went to mediocre grades and then eventually to bad grades, um, it was it was a strange situation where I would I would I would be getting a D in literature class, but reading six, seven, eight books a week. I just wouldn't <laughs> read the books they would assign in class because I didn't like those books. I mean, I don't I don't know uh, how many folks had an education like mine. I was a public school kid, and um, the books that they thought it was important for kids to read in the formative years were um, they all had a similar plot, right? Which is a child of your age uh, whose life is fairly bad in most ways discovers uh, an animal and makes friends with the animal. The animal becomes beloved and the center of this child's life and existence, and then the animal dies, and that's the end of the story. Um, the yearling, you know, <laughs> on and on, all these types of things, and uh, and I guess I didn't. I didn't need that. My life had enough challenge of its own outside. I was looking for transcendence in my reading. Um, I didn't know that and couldn't use the, those terms, wouldn't necessarily couch it in religious terms, but I just wanted something that would lift me out of ordinary everyday life into greater things. Um, and so it took me a while. Actually, it took my conversion to Christianity, which came when I was 16, um, to discover an interest in knowledge uh, that is that I would say is more intrinsic. I wouldn't say knowledge for knowledge's sake because it's really knowledge for God's sake, but it's more intrinsic because the knowledge is itself a way of understanding God better. I remember when I was, um, I think, as I was a senior in high school at this point, I read a book called "All Truth Is God's Truth," and um, as I was reading that, he used the example, he used a mathematical example, and he said, you know, of course, we all know two plus two equals four in base ten. But in base five, it would be something else entirely. And that blew my mind. And then as he made applications of that, I began to get excited about, whoa, even math, my least favorite subject, has potential applications for theology. And that reignited a passion for learning that connected what I had been doing outside of school to what I was now going to be doing in school. So I went to Oral Roberts University. I studied English literature for a bachelor's degree um, with a minor in modern Hebrew. And then I went on to Yale Divinity School, where I got a Master of Arts in Religion and Historical Theology. And then I did uh, more graduate work at Yale, getting a couple of master's degrees in theology, uh, an MPhil in vernacular medieval literature, and then a PhD in, in philosophical theology. Wow, what a journey. I, I love, uh, there seems to be a theme on our podcast with many of our guests and what you just described, you know, here's my prescribed reading. This is what the school says I have to read. 
you know, they've got this, you know, core curriculum and, uh, but here's what I'm actually reading. Here's where I'm interested. And I think it's Alan Jacobs that talks about the idea of a, um, a whim reading at a whim. There's a capital W and a small W, not the kind of reading at a whim that I just pick up random willy nilly, but having some sense of what is interesting, what's compelling, what's, you know, bringing wonder and curiosity and reading in that direction as, mm -hmm. you know, as we're inclined. And that sounds a lot like what you did. Um, in, that's exactly that right. Phase. That's exactly right. And that's, you know, this, I want to put a pin in that because as we talk about what I'm doing now, that's directly connected to trying to address that disconnect that I experienced as a child. Oh, that's fabulous. Well, that's a great segue into talking a little bit about your services. I know you have teaching services at uh, academia.junius.johnson.com. I'll get that right in the show notes for our listeners. Uh, you'll have a link to that in there. But tell us about your teaching services and um, and how that plays into this that you were just talking about, that missing link. Yeah. So, the you know, I, I taught for years. Um, I've taught in public school and high school. I've taught in um, classical Christian schools, uh, first in a homeschool co-op and then in, a, in an actual school. And I've taught at seminary and I've taught at university um, and all of these various things, um, taught at the parish level. And there's always, um, it's interesting. I love the students that I've had in all those different types of scenarios. Uh, the, the most challenging ones were not surprisingly the public school ones. Uh, but, but, uh, you know, as a university professor, my access to people was pretty limited. I mean, I was, my teaching was, was, uh, hidden behind a pretty intense gauntlet of, uh, requirements that you had to go through before you could study with me, right? You had to, quit your job and move to where I was. You had to be accepted to study there. You had to pay $50,000 a year um, to get in. And then if all of that was the case, then you could take a class with me, unless it was full, of course, and then you're, you're out of luck. Um, and over time, um, in the, the pandemic and, and changing personal circumstances as well, gave me an opportunity to reflect upon um, what might it be like to remove those barriers and allow mm. more direct access. And it's in essence to democratize the teaching that I do. Um, and so I really began Janice Johnson Academics with that in mind um, to say, you know, what if you as a uh, an adult person who enjoys the life of the mind, but who has also got um, financial responsibilities and therefore limited time and energy to spend on these pursuits, what if you had the possibility to study with um, an Ivy League trained, world-renowned scholar um, at your, in your home at a time that fit your schedule um, and for a price that was very friendly? Or what if your kids could study with that kind of person? Uh, what would that bring? What type of opportunities could that bring? So that was kind of where I started. But then the question became, okay, but what do I really have to offer? Um, <laughs> what's, what are we going to be putting on the table here? And, uh, you know, especially with relation to children, that's when I was thrown back on my own experience as someone who loved reading and hated literature class. And I thought, mm, really, I mean, literature class is not, especially not anymore. Um, the the canon, you know, ev even among us in the classical crowd where we have a, a, a more well-defined canon, the, the, the primary focus of reading is not um, knowing familiarity with this body of knowledge. It's about a skill of reading that enables you to make continual progress on a canon that's larger than you're going to complete in this lifetime. 
right? I mean, I've, I've been I've been working on this thing for decades now, and I feel like I've got a pretty good start on it. But um, no, not a conversation goes by when someone doesn't say, "Have you read this?" And I'm like, "No," <laughs> right? Um, so, 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 okay. The question is to teach them how to read. I realized I can teach you how to read well from anything. Um, okay, maybe not anything, maybe not a newspaper, but if it's a novel, you know, if it's got a narrative and plot and characters, I can teach you how to read closely. And the skills that I would use to read the Dungeons and Dragons novels when I was a kid are the same skills I needed to use to read the Odyssey. But mm. I didn't see, I didn't see a personal connection. I didn't, I did, I didn't love the Odyssey. I wanted to get lost in the other fantasy books. And so I thought, well, what if I did teaching that would bring those things together? Well, we would read the types of books that the students choose to read on their own, things like The Hobbit or The Voyage of the Dawn Tread or that sort of a thing. But we read them in ways that um, train them for literary reading. I think if you do that, and, I, and I've seen this now that I've been doing it for a while, what happens is you break down the distinction between what you have to read for school and what you want to read for yourself. And everything that you read just becomes a matter of, let me find that personal connection to it. And once I find that, I'm off and running. In the context of Latin, which is another area that I do a lot of teaching in, it was uh, a similar but a, you know a different sort of thing, which is um, I was a very bad Latin student to begin with. I didn't start Latin until very late in life. It was not until after I was in graduate school and I didn't get it. I didn't understand what was important to work on. And so I spent a lot of energy on the wrong things and I didn't spend enough energy on the right things. Once I got good at it and figured it out and fell in love with it, um, I began to see that part of the problem was an approach that I was allowed to take to the language, how I thought about it, which is as this problem. I thought about it more like a code than a language. Right. Hmm. A code is intended to keep people out. So only the select <laughs> few can understand it. A language is public and anyone is meant to be able to understand it. Approaching Latin like a code made me resentful of all of its difficulties. When I learned to approach it like a language, I began to ask the question, okay, what concrete communication issue are they trying to solve with this? And then it became a lot more inherently interesting. What if I could help uh, children who are studying Latin, not become their Latin teacher, but rather come in as an intervention and give them a love of the language that would recharge and energize their, their normal study. I feel like that would be a worthwhile contribution. That's absolutely fabulous. And, and several things that you just said in um, what you talked about are really compelling. In the first place, you're really speaking our language in removing the barriers to quality education. Um, a lot of our modern education system is built on, you know, uh, these these more modern uh, programs and approaches that uh, have really replaced, you know, what could possibly be. But the kind of education that people used to get required a kind of eliteness, a certain amount of um, connection and finances and things to get there. And you mentioned you use the word democratize education, the right kind of education. And I feel like you're speaking our language in that because this is this is a time in which you know we have the resources to really allow folks to have the kind of elite education that a lot of people didn't have. But typically in a democracy or in a democratized state of being, everything's a race to the bottom. And what you're actually mm -hmm. saying is we wanna use uh, the democratic impulse actually to uh, bring or afford those who want it, the right kind of education. And that's what, you, what you're doing. So I, I really appreciate that. And I only just wanted to, to tag that for our, our listeners. 
The second thing you said that I'd really love for you to unpack a little bit more, you started to with the Latin and, and that was really good, but you mentioned both a, a canon of books or, or a, you know, a, a pool of knowledge and a particular pedagogy of learning how to read it well so that we make progress in it, uh, knowing that this pool uh, far exceeds us, right? 3,000 years of, of literature just in the Western tradition. Mm. Um, there's no way we'll ever get to touch everything that's that's good in that. Uh, but we can make progress toward the, the virtue and the wisdom, you know, through a particular process. Would you unpack just a little bit, maybe talk a little bit about that canon and then um, talk about the pedagogy that you use to uh, this close reading that you mentioned? Would you talk yeah. about that as well? Yeah. Well, one of the, you know, there was a concentrated attack on the notion of a canon um, that I was, I found myself um, fairly in the middle of, not as a contributor, but just as someone who felt called to make a conscious decision about this by virtue of the fact that I was a, a literature scholar who was also studying at Yale where, where Harold Bloom taught. Um, and he was there while I was there. And this is the author of a book called the Western Canon. Um, and so sort of the, the, the staunch defender of no, there's a particular body of knowledge that we're to teach and it doesn't, um, it's not really assailable. Uh, of course, the critique is, but there's a lot of stuff that gets left out of that. There are a lot of voices that don't get heard in that. And so how are we to make spaces for those? How are we going to make sure that the students are reading authors who look like them and who have experiences that are like theirs? Um, well, I always found myself on the conservative side of that argument to say, well, just because, um, you know, as a student, as a person of color myself, just because um, Shakespeare doesn't look like me doesn't mean that we don't have similar experiences. Um, I, I really resonate with what's going on there. And, you know, Homer, Homer is still being read 3000 years later, precisely because we have all had those experiences. We know exactly what he's talking about. Right. Um, but, but then I, I, I found another complaint with the defenders of the canon later on, which was um, a lot of the things that I love to read which fall under heading the genres of science fiction and fantasy were excluded. And I, and I met with a sort of um, snobbery about, well, you know, it's not high literature, right? I mean, we're really talking. And I thought, I mean, some of these books that I could name, the, the Lord of the Rings, for example, is better than some books that are in the canon. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> it doesn't mean those books should be taken out of the canon because they're in the canon, not because they're the best books imaginable, but because they're important because they're an important part of the conversation, right? Well, that notion of conversation was really helpful for me. It really helped us clarify some things for me, because as long as I was thinking about a canon, it was it, it was more like scripture, right? These are the 66 books or the, how, how many are there? Wait a minute, these are the books that have been set aside. And these are the ones that we can, we can't go outside of that. Um, but once I thought of it as a conversation, it's like, well, but it's it, the conversation hasn't finished. It's still going. And it doesn't just mean that I enter the conversation as someone who's reading and thinking along with it. It also means that the people from the less favored periods are more recent and even our contemporary voices are part of that conversation. And it opened up space for me to begin to think about the canon differently. Okay, so once I did that, once I've now got a larger body where I can say I'm, I can include Lewis and Tolkien and, and Chesterton and folks like this in my canon without attacking the very notion of there being a Western canon and a Western tradition, um, then I began to see that a lot of, there was a, a second and more subtle snobbery at work that I had also been in, uh, trained up into, which is that um, there are books that you read seriously and there are books that you read um, frivolously. And you can, mm -hmm. you're welcome to read frivolously 
on your own time, right? At home, right before you go to bed at night, something like that. We don't talk about that, those things. We set those aside. We know everyone does it. It's fine, but it's kind of an acceptable, respectable vice. Well, with this larger canon in tow, I began to see that I didn't have any reason to make that distinction. That Mm. maybe the question was just, you know, good books, bad books, old books, new books. What are they contributing to the conversation? Now, I don't have time to read bad books. There's, there's, there's really not, there's actually not really time to read good books. There's too many great <laughs> books to spend time on the good ones, but, but we, you know, we indulge, but, um, but it, it became a notion in my own, in my own, it, it unified my own reading to where I could now think, okay, I'm just not that I'm reading this as a scholar and this as a private person, but I'm just reading. And all of those stories feed me. And all of those stories are material that I can use for helping a student understand. So my teaching has always been peppered with, I like to say it's, uh, I'm a, a confusion of the sublime and the ridiculous because I'm as mm, likely to yeah. quote the Marvel Cinematic Universe as I am to quote Shakespeare when I'm teaching. Um, and I think that's good. I think that helps students to approach learning in an integrated fashion. When we, when we separate those things out, we wind up introducing artificial distinctions into the thinking of our students themselves, which gives them that problem of how do I integrate this stuff? And I think that creates false choices. And when you give students false choices, they're sometimes going to choose away from the things that are good, true, and beautiful because they're easier. Yeah. I, I love the way you're treating the idea of canon. Sometimes, you know, uh, that, that debate can get pretty, um, convoluted and and confusing so many nuances to it but the idea of a canon like a canon of scripture uh is a little different than you know when we use the word canon for the western tradition we're we're using a little bit more loosely and i appreciate Mm -hmm. the way that you talk about that you know because something like the lord of the rings you mentioned doesn't have time on its side yet Mm -hmm. but it does have all of the you know uh tenets of a classic right it 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 carries with it some of the weightier things that that we would always uh think about and you you brought up marvel and and some of the other you know what would be considered maybe more frivolous but there are some notions in some of these you know in the modern context that just like we're pulling from pagans um we may be pulling from some moderns that uh are worth you know considering so i love that i just wanted to kind of recap that uh for our listeners that uh the way you treated that i think is really healthy thank you so you were talking then about a particular way of reading and whether that's reading, um, you know, modern literature or Tolkien or whether you're reading the classics that uh, to teach, you know, to love to read, to know how to read, to make progress. Can you talk a little bit about that process? What does that look like? I mean, I realize you probably teach whole courses on it, so I'm not asking you to give a, <laughs> a whole <laughs> seminar, but maybe just unpack a, a little elevator pitch on what does that look like for a student? Yeah, well, I'll give a concrete example, um, and it's it, it'll be it should be familiar to to listeners because it's it's a classical, somewhat Socratic approach, um, mm-hmm. which is you know we're guiding the students through conversation to introspection and to inspection of the world around them, and so I'll take an example from The Hobbit. Um, Famously, at the, at the end of The Hobbit, uh, the dwarves and Bilbo have finally arrived, uh, and they've taken, they've retaken possession of Erebor and its treasures. And Thorin has got everyone scouring the horde, looking for the Arkenstone, uh, which which Bilbo found right away and and has in his possession and is in his keeping and is holding back. Um, 
And then, of course, the elves and the men show up with their armies uh, seeking reparations for all of the harm that the dragon did to them. And the men of the Dalelands have an especially good claim because some, all the treasure of, um, of their kingdom wound up mixed in with the dwarf treasure. So some of that money is historically theirs and ought to be restored to them. But Thorin is unwilling to, to listen to reason, um, his, his greed which the dwarves have been reproached with several times in the novel, has really overtaken him. So Bilbo does this thing, this action, which is really quite questionable. Um, he's supposed to be friends of these dwarves, and he's shared all kinds of dangers with them, and they've become bonded by the things they've gone through. He sneaks out at night, and he takes the treasure, which is the heart of the mountain, and he hands it over to Thorin's enemies so that they'll have a bargaining chip that they can use to get Thorin to treat with them. And when he does so, he hands it over and he says, this is the heart of the mountain, or rather, it's the heart of Thorin Oakenshield. Mm. Now, th that's a really interesting moment to talk about in class. So, Bilbo is giving the heart of his friend to his enemies. And he's doing it in what he believes is an act of friendship. Okay, we need to talk about what friendship means then. Yeah. Do the boundaries of friendship stretch so far as betraying your friend's deepest trust to your enemies for the good of your friend? And, and, and on top of that, they offer Bilbo sanctuary. And Bilbo says, no, I told them I'd be back for the next watch. I have a responsibility to my friends to go back. He's going to go back and take the consequences for his action. He's not going to hide behind the enemies at this point. I, you get a very rich discussion of friendship out of that that is as good as anything you could have from the Nicomachean ethics. Um, mm -hmm. And the students, you know, the, the, Lewis used this example when he spoke of um, fantasy children's stories as uh, there are these watchful dragons that come into play. Sometimes we talk about theology and he thought that maybe children's stories might be a way that we could sneak past those watchful dragons and get you into the conversation without those defenses coming up. Here, the hobbits gotten us into a conversation where the defenses against Aristotle and philosophy might have popped up and kept the students from being engaged. Um, when I ask the question, what does Aristotle say about friendship and what does that mean? I get crickets in the room. When I ask the question, <laughs> is, Bill is Bilbo being a good friend of Thor and Oakenshield? Everyone's hands goes up and they all have an opinion and they're arguing with each other and it's, it's a wonderful discussion, right? And then the, the important thing is to later on take that conversation and tie it back to Aristotle. So they recognize Aristotle's having the same conversation. He's asking the same question just in a different way. And now all of a sudden you can read Aristotle with a little bit more of the joy that you read The Hobbit with. That's fabulous. I, you know, I have, my history has primarily been with uh, high school uh, upperclassmen for most of the last 25 years uh, of my education experience. And I love the fact that we have conversations like you just described in class and then parents are either emailing me or talking to me and saying, man, our dinner table conversation has just been amazing because those conversations don't just end in the classroom. That's right. They carry on whether they're, you know, in the quad or at home or where, you know, depending on the student's context. But those conversations are perennial human questions that uh, really is what the heart of education. So I love that. I'm glad you unpacked that for our, our listeners. Uh, I think it's a beautiful approach. So, you know, given your experience, it's pretty wide range. Um, I'm, I'm interested maybe in a little bit on your views, uh, particularly because you have taken approach to sort of remove some of the boundaries to democratize a good education. What are your views of modern education, the state of modern education? 
Um, are, are we in a place where it can be redeemed? Should we lean into this alt-ed sort of approach? Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a complicated question. And, and I, would, I would not want to give the impression that, um, listen, this is, this is the problem with education and, and that's the way it is. And either we need to fix it or abandon it or whatever else. It's a very complicated question and, it, and it's bound up in socioeconomic uh, issues. It's bound up in all sorts of things. Um, I will say that um, you know, as a, as a public school graduate myself, there are dynamics in the public school that um, there are so many dynamics in the public school that had nothing to do with the education itself that um, my primary, when I think back on my time in school, my primary experience and memories are not of the education, but of everything else that went on around mm -hmm. the education. Um, again, specifically as a person of color, there was a great deal of peer pressure not to be too smart. Um, you were ridiculed and you were ostracized if you were too smart. And I've seen this also as a teacher in a public school where I had uh, one instance, I had a very, very bright student and went in my Latin class. Um, and she was, she was a freshman taking the Latin class. She was the only freshman in the class and she was right up there at the top of the class with everyone else. She was a student of color. Um, I began to notice somewhere around the middle of the year, um, her performance started to drop off. And then she started to intentionally sabotage herself. She would come to class with a newspaper and sit in the front row of the class and read the newspaper in the middle of class. Um, and her, her grade went from an A to a C very quickly. And then her parents showed up and like, well, what are you doing giving our daughter a C? I was like, what's going on with your daughter? Like, mm -hmm. why, what has changed in her mindset that, that she's acting this way? And what we were able to figure out was she had started running with a different group of people who were making fun of her for being really smart and being bookish and whatnot. And so she was sabotaging her grades for to, to save face socially. And, and I definitely felt that pressure um, in my own growing up. And so for that reason, I, I won't put my kids in public school. My kids are in a private Christian school, um, not just because of the my commitment to classical education and not just because of the shared values um, that are there, but also because there are these other dynamics that they would experience as part of a particular subculture that are um, that go directly against the task of education. So, so one of the issues with mainstream contemporary education is everything that is an education that's connected to it. There's a culture, there's a public school culture yeah. that has to be addressed in some way. Um, and so that's a, that's a concern. And that's a difficult question because we're talking about a secular context in which there is pretty much no agreement over what cultural norms should be. So how does one go about attempting to address that? Um, that that's a difficult question. The other question is um, related to what we said about canon earlier. There's an aporia, um, just a, a sort of ambig ambiguity about what are the things that are worth teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and so education at the public level has become very politicized, whether uh, on the right or left side of the aisle. Uh, down here in the South where I live, there's a politicization of public teaching, which has a, wears a Christian veneer, but which is no less um, contrary to the larger Western tradition of education than the more secular version of it. Um, that is to say, um, the way we deal with things that we don't understand is that we censor them. And we say, yeah. you don't read them and we're going to ban them and whatnot. Um, so I think that the, the biggest problem I would diagnose, aside from the cultural one, with the process itself is um, a lack of clarity about what education is for. Oh, that's good. Right. Yeah. If, that if education is meant to be 
to prepare you to get a job and do well and things like that, um, well, then the go- the ends are very are very difficult to define because what does it mean to be prepared to get a job? We think in the classical tradition, the goal of education is not to be located somewhere outside of the student, right? Yeah, right it's right. rather <laughs> a certain, um, it's training the student to think well. Students who think well can do all sorts of things, right? Yeah. And I think that's the problem is until we get clarity on that, I, I think mainstream education is going to continue to, to circle the drain. Well, you've, you've said several things here that, um, again, you're just echoing a lot of what um, other guests and, and my own experience have, have proven over and over. I had a uh, speaking to the culture issue that you were talking about. Um, I pastored in Las Vegas for a number of years and I had wow. a, a friend that I worked with who uh, was a public school teacher, and we worked together on a project at the uh, Air Force Base Chapel. And he, uh, I would just ask him, hey, how was school today? And one time he told me, um, he said, well, if we can keep, and he was a high school counselor and, and, and teacher in, uh, in Las Vegas, of course, a very diversified uh, kind of a city. And he said, if we can keep them from stabbing each other, having sex in the quad, selling drugs to each other, uh, you know, or getting in a fight that, you know, calls the police, he said, then we are having a good day. <laughs> and, um, and I was, you know, and, and he was, you know, certainly half joking in, in terms of, but, but what he was describing was this sort of culture of nothing to do with education, mm-hmm. right? It, it exactly. all had to do with, with what was, you know, periphery to the, um, the actual education part. And then, of course, you mentioned ideology versus education. And even today, if if the goal is to get a, a job, there's so many other options yeah. for training than than paying, you know, one hundred twenty thousand dollars in some cases for an undergrad degree, uh, right. which just seems absolutely crazy to me. So yeah, I really appreciate your thoughts. The idea of virtue and wisdom and being a good thinker um, has to be inherent in our approach to education. That's right. So maybe tell us as we we kind of wind down just a little bit. Um, Tell us a little bit about what you're studying these days. Are you doing any research projects or what kind of uh, projects are you working on? Yeah, I've got, I've got several things in the fire that I'm very excited about. Uh, one is um, I'm doing a project on developing a theology of the imagination, mm. which is a follow-up to my work on the theology of beauty. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited about where this is going. There's, there's all this material that I've loved for as long as I've been aware of it in, in Lewis, Tolkien, Shefferton, McDonald. Um, that is really exciting stuff, but um, but it's it's really a beginning. It's a starting place. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're still having to make the first stage apologetic argument that it is worthwhile for Christians to engage in these sorts of imaginative pursuits at all, and th- so that's why they're having to write things like on fairy stories and this sorts of thing on writing for children. Um, the further work of going into yeah, but what's the What's the what's the theology of the imagination in general? Like, how do we give a theological account of the human faculty, the imagination, and how it fits into the life of faith? Um, and one of the issues that I see here is that the the modernist project, um, which you can stretch back at least to the beginning of the Enlightenment, um, is is a project that that attempts to say that for human thinking, reason alone suffices, mm. and that turns into the claim that reason is what it means to think. I think that's a, it's an innovation um, and not a good one. 
Um, I think that before that time, it was at least implicitly understood that human thinking involved reason, but it also involved a whole lot of other stuff as well. And that perhaps principle among those other things was what we would now call imagination. Yeah. Um, so if that's true, then what we've done is we have we have caricatured um, reason and we have hindered our own thinking by tying one hand behind our backs. And so what I'm trying to do with this project is to untie that hand and show um, give a theological account of human thinking that restores imagination to its place alongside reason as an important and essential way that we engage the world. Wow, I. I... I'm sure you have more to say on this, so I apologize for interrupting you, but you just struck a chord, something that just reminded me, um, you know, thinking about the modernist project, everything is reductionist, right? That's right. So you have, you know, Darwin makes us biological men, uh, Freud makes us psychological men, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so everything is, you know, boiled down to some sort of um, mere essence of, of something. And you're saying, that with the enlightenment we've we've made thinking the ability the faculty of the minds uh down to just one and so we're we're missing uh certain elements um and it, it just an, an echo of that um totally unrelated so maybe it's a weird connection but i remember when jesus was talking to some of the disciples and uh, they said why couldn't we cast out these demons why couldn't we do this and he said well some of these come out not just by uh, prayer, but by prayer and fasting. Like yeah. there's there's another aspect to this that you know you you've only got one part of this, and it always struck me that you know when we limit you know the faculties or 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 the the elements of something, we don't get the whole picture. We don't flourish as we ought to. So that's what right. I'm hearing you say. Is that is that pretty close? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, and and so we have to reunify our souls and our thinking in order to, you know, God gave us all these things and, and we have us, we gave us souls and bodies and we constantly mm -hmm. pit them against one another. And it's like, who I am is my soul. And this body is this thing that's getting in the way. No friend, who you are is body and soul. That's why there's a resurrection of the dead. That that's an essential yeah. part of who you are. And so we have to overcome the divisions uh, within ourselves by grace, because the, those divisions are the result of sin. And it's only by means of grace, we can overcome them. And that's why it's got to be a theology of the imagination and not merely a philosophy of the imagination. Uh, because I think it, it, it won't work if we don't look at it in light of the revealed truths of scripture. Are you publishing anything on that? Or have you published anything on it yet? I have not yet. So far, the act, the way that I've made that publicly available is uh, a course that I teach called The Wisdom of Possibility, which I offer for adults, which is where I've been working out a lot of the ideas. Um, I am just about to give a talk in uh, later on in November um, in Maryland for the Elliott Society on this question, which will be the that talk will be the basis of the first chapter of the book. And so I'm hopeful that that will kickstart me going down the moving from thinking to writing about it sooner rather than later. Um, but it's it's one of a constellation of projects I'm working on. And there's always the challenge of thinking, okay, which one should I be trying to finish? And how do I prioritize which ones to bring to con conclusion? Another one that I'm working on that I'm very excited about is a series of theological readings of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And so mm. I take each of the episodes of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader as illustrative of some theological principle. For example, how they get into Narnia. One of my favorite transitions into Narnia, right? They fall into the painting that's on the wall and find themselves inside the world of the painting. Uh, I think it's a very good image of what happens when we worship with icons. And so uh. to, to draw out those connections and show how Lewis has dramatized that action, whether intentionally or not, um, 
is, is very fun and also very edifying. And I think you can do that throughout the whole book with questions of baptism, Eucharist, uh, Eustace's um, de-dragoning is a very good way to think about baptism, questions of spiritual watchfulness, questions of the Eucharist, and so on and so forth. Beautiful. Well, we'll have uh, links to any of that that's available where uh, Dr. Junius is speaking and uh, where that course could be made available. We'll have those in the show notes for our listeners. Uh, Dr. Junius, as we wrap up, um, uh, this has been just a, a delight hearing from you and, and your thoughts on these things. Could you uh, talk a little bit about, uh, for just a moment, um, things that our listeners could be reading, uh, things that they could be listening to, something that you would recommend to enrich, uh, whether it be their imagination or some other aspect of their classical education? Yeah. Um a work that I really, really love that I only became aware of in the last few years is uh, Chesterton's Tremendous Trifles. Um, if folks have not read much Chesterton at all or have read Chesterton and not read that particular work, I highly recommend it. It's a series of very short essays that were originally published as a column in uh, in a newspaper. Um, and the, the, the goal of it is to – his thought is if you look at small things closely, they're wonders. Right. It's Chesterton's mm. entire product is re-enchanting the, the disenchanted modern world. So he tells this, this parable at the beginning of two boys, both of whom are granted a wish by a fairy. And the, the first boy wishes to be large so that he can stride over all the earth in a moment. So he gets very big and he sets off to see all the great things of the world, Niagara Falls and the Grand Canyon and whatnot. And he's disappointed because they're just, you know, Niagara Falls looks like a little puddle <laughs> to him and the Grand Canyon is like a little ditch and it's just not that impressive. And he's so um, exhausted with disappointment that he lies down in a field to sleep um, and a farmer comes out and finds this giant in his field and cuts his head off. The other boy asked to be very, very small. And when he did, he, the garden, that little tiny front lawn that they had in London turned into an entire fairyland of delights, which he set about exploring and continues to explore to this day and has not come to the end of it. Um, and Chesterton's thinking is he, he, he says, Woodyard Kipling is an example of the first thing, and I'm going to mm. respond to Kipling with these tremendous trifles, which is I'm going to write a whole essay on what have I got in my pockets. Yeah. <laughs> and and the, the results are uh, as delightful as uh, only Chesterton can be. They're surprising. They're informative. Uh, and it really helps, I think, with uh, the project of transforming how we look at the everyday world around us. So I would highly recommend Chesterton's tremendous trifles. Beautiful. Uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Well, Dr. Junius, uh, thank you so much for being with us today and uh, sharing your insights. And we really appreciate the work you're doing and look forward to uh, further conversations in the future. God bless you. Thank you, you so much. Great to be here.